The topic of this episode might seem strange, given all that's going on in the world at this time. There's no lack of serious issues at hand, and to be fair, as far as serious and important things go, this topic comes way, way, way down the list. As a matter of fact, you might even feel a little provoked that we're doing something like this now, something that is quote-unquote light, And if you do, all I can do is apologise in advance and say that sometimes history is not all about the big events. Sometimes it is about looking back at what people coming before us have done and smile a little, shake our heads in disbelief and laugh perhaps. For me, my love for history is sometimes about the quirky, weird stuff that we have done throughout the ages. History proves to us what extraordinary things humankind is capable of, all the way from extremes such as ritual sacrifices to travels to space to crazy ideologies and love dramas and intrigue, and then to silly things that we have tried that didn't work. All this is part of what and who we are. Now, on this show, we are mostly concerned with the game changes in history, hence the name, But I do occasionally also want to give some space to the weird stuff in history in order to ensure that there is never only doom and gloom on this feed. And this will be such an episode. Now, a few of you might also be upset that I'm branding this as something light and fun when animal cruelty will definitely also play a part in this episode. And I am aware, and I do not endorse that in any way, But even though you have animal rights at the very top of your list or the things that matters the most for you, I still think that the humour in this will not be entirely lost on you. This is very much a tale that speaks to the folly of man. We are going to travel to the country I identify the second most with, Australia. But first and foremost, this is a tale that is, by most people, is considered humorous. For you see, today... We are going to get into the very real, very public conflict that occurred when professional soldiers from the Australian Army, armed with machine guns, went to war with a huge bunch of flightless birds and lost. Now, if you haven't been to Australia, I can't recommend it highly enough. As you might have gathered from my accent, I have spent some time there more accurately in Brisbane as I went to university there 20 years ago. But, as you will also know if you've listened frequently to this podcast, you know that I'm originally from Scandinavia. Anyways, I see this episode as a kind of homage to Australia, even though some might perhaps view it otherwise, as there are a couple of people that will come out of this looking rather silly. And I know how Australians are very proud of their country, so the intention will not be to make fun, but to discuss something of the more bizarre humankind has attempted in combating nature. And most people making fun of this event will indeed also be other Australians. To begin our tale, 
we need to understand Australian nature and wildlife situations. So from the very beginning of the world, you might know that all Earth's continents were interconnected into one huge blob just known as Pangaea before each continent started breaking loose. I mean, you can still, of course, easily see how these were once together. If you look at Brazil, for example, you see very well how it fits into Western Africa. But all this is, of course, millions and millions of years ago. When what we now call Australia broke loose from this Pangaea, it would be pretty isolated with little exchange of animal and plant life from those other huge islands that would become the other continents. Now that would mean that Australia would develop a unique plant and animal life unlike anything anywhere else on the planet. And what is hugely fascinating is that it will remain like this up until a few hundred years ago when the Europeans came with their big ships and started colonising the place. But even to this day, roughly speaking, the majority of species and of animals and plants that you'll find in Australia, they are stuff that you won't find anywhere else in the world, although imported species now heavily dominate certain places. The original animals of Australia, they might be ancient relatives of other species found other places, but in so many ways, Australia is a truly unique place. You'll probably also know that when the Europeans brought with them animals, either as pets or as farm animals, that created huge problems for the Australian ecosystem, as these were species that were completely foreign and would have no natural predators. So they would basically run away into the wild, they would breed and multiply and then destroy huge parts of the original ecosystem, making many local species extinct. And this goes for just so many various animals. I mean, you have cats, for example. There are tons of them running out in the wild, killing local birds and, and lizards. You have feral pigs, heaps of them too. Feral rabbits just causing havoc. Some of my Australian friends once said to me that if you see any of these animals in the wild, it's your duty to try to kill it. And if you go to Australia even today, there will be very strict rules for what you can bring with you in and almost no organic materials at all will be allowed as they are working very hard to preserve the unique ecosystem. And in fact, right now you might start getting some of the same ideas as the people in this episode will. If these animals are causing so many problems, why are we not just getting rid of them all? Now, if you look at Australian geography and demography, it's very interesting because you have about 26 million people living in Australia now and almost all live in the big cities and towns that are located along the coast. So that's Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Canberra, Newcastle, Darwin and so forth, at least close to the coast. But apart from that, in some clusters of places located by lovely beaches and such, Huge parts of Australia is more or less uninhabited. This is what is often referred to as the outback. So most of the stuff in the middle is more or less left to wildlife and animals. And a lot of the reason is that it's not necessarily easy to set up big towns there. It's quite a bit of desert, many places. Access to fresh water is not always easy and so forth. 
You do have the town of Alice Springs that's in the middle there, close to the magnificent mountain uh, of Uluru. But basically, there's a lot of open space. And don't get fooled by the size of Australia thinking that this is some kind of semi-big island. It is huge. Much, much bigger than we often get the impression of when looking at a globe. Some, you know, because it's kind of tucked away down there at the bottom. But if you look at the stats, Australia covers 7,692,000 square kilometres. And just to put that into perspective, that's actually 5% of Earth's total landmass. So to give it a different perspective, it's almost 60 times bigger than England that will colonise it. Actually, Australia is almost as big as the entire United States if you exclude Alaska. So basically imagine that you have the US only, that you have 10, 13 times fewer people, and the people that live there are either living on the eastern or southeastern coast, and to some extent on the western coast, but other than that, there are really no cities and there's nothing in the middle, almost no people living there. This is the outback where the animals rule. When I started uni in Brisbane, they had this lecture for all us foreign students coming in and they very explicitly told us to never go on a road trip on our own into the outback because you can risk being lost out there and there might be days or weeks even before the next car will come by. So if you run out of fuel or water out there, you are potentially in big, big trouble. So... The English, when they came to Australia, they started settling it in the late 1700s. Captain James Cook famously came to Botany Bay in the year 1770, not really that long ago in a historical context. And this is, of course, the start of modern-day Australia, and there's a lot of terrible things happening with the clash of the local populations, as so often is the case when Europeans come to new places. And in many ways... Australia and New Zealand, they are the last frontiers at this time, sort of the last places to explore, the last last big white spots on the maps. And as the English are bringing with them all sorts of animals that immediately start doing all this damage, still to this day, they are also bringing with them more European-style industrialised agriculture and irrigation. And as time goes by, much more land is being farmed. Australia is, by the way, today famous for its huge cattle stations, just basically huge cattle ranches that are some of them actually bigger than certain European countries, and that should tell you something. But as farming and agriculture spreads further and further inland, that also has its own effect on the Australian ecosystem. So... While a lot of local species are getting extinct, many types of lizards and birds and whatnot are being eaten by all these new predators, you're also seeing the opposite effect for some local species, often the bigger animals that are not threatened by wild rabbits or cats or pigs, but that are starting to multiply because of this expanding agriculture So more irrigation and more farming over large areas that are hard to protect means much more crops for them to eat. 
So especially some species of kangaroos have gone up a whole lot because of this. I think we're close to 48 million kangaroos in Australia now. So, And uh, they've been increasing by roughly 1 million a year. So there's a lot of kangaroos. So if you're growing crops in Australia now, chances are that you might see kangaroos not only as your national symbol, but also as a quite annoying animal that you try to keep out because they are constantly messing up whatever you're trying to grow. And that finally brings us to our topic of today because we see a little bit of the same when it comes to the emu. And if you are uncertain of what an emu is, I'll explain it. So an emu can simply put be seen as a kind of ostrich. It's a very distant relative from the ostrich from millions of years ago, but like so many other Australian animals, it has developed on its own in a unique way. So what we are talking about here is a large flightless bird, potentially as tall as a human, that also like the ostrich has a little bit of a comical look to its head. It has a big kind of flat beak and really big round eyes, making it have this rather odd expression. I mean, in one way, it's like a huge chicken. It kind of looks, it looks like a cartoon character, to be honest. And it's super fast. Uh, in fact, an emu can run at least 45 kilometers an hour at the top speed, and they can do that over quite some distance. So this is faster than the top speed that Usain Bolt ever recorded, and it can keep it up for quite some time. So that means that in absolutely every situation, the emu can outrun you. The emus, they can also breed quite effectively. It's actually the male that will watch over and incubate the eggs while the female leaves and can mate all over again. And just like the kangaroo, the emu finds the increased agriculture and irrigation as a potential new source of food. Now, there are many fewer emus in Australia than kangaroos today, so... It's not quite a fair comparison. I think there are roughly 700,000 emus living in Australia now. And even though one subspecies actually became extinct, for the most part, the emu has been doing very well since the arrival of the Europeans. So when this story takes place is in Western Australia in the early 1930s. And the hugely important backdrop for our story is the Great Depression. Now, it takes a fair bit of time for the shockwaves of the Wall Street crash to reach around the globe, but eventually the shockwaves are felt all the way to Australia. So these are hard times, and some of the people feeling it is um, they are farmers out west. So, And the farmers we're talking about here, they are not ordinary farmers. They're actually mostly veterans from World War I that has been granted land to farm for their war efforts. Now, the Australian soldiery from the Great War, they uh, I mean, it's famous. They are by some seen as perhaps the best infantrymen of them all. Many Australians take great pride in their ANSAC troops for very good reason. And um, they also made a huge impact in the Second World War 
uh, again, often seen as some of the toughest of the tough. So these are retired soldiers. They're more than used to using firearms. And as these hard economic times are hitting them, the emus are simultaneously being attracted to their crops more because or there is a drought happening at the same time further inland. So these rather huge, comical-looking birds, they are starting to become a real pest to these farmers during the year of 1932, as they are constantly knocking down fences and helping themselves to whatever they are growing. And when they knock stuff down, the smaller animals they can enter as well, because they make hole in fences and so forth. Now, we're not talking about a small pack of birds here. We're talking about up to 20,000 huge emus. You know, as I said, they're as big as a human coming in and eating the crops. Um, Also, they're obviously vastly outnumbering the relatively few farmers. So the farmers, they feel that they need, you know, they need everything that they're growing during these really difficult times, right? And... You know, times are hard, there's not much money to be made, and why should the emus go unpunished? This must be a job for the government, right? Now, being a politician during the Great Depression is not great. People are naturally dissatisfied, and you want to please in the few ways that you can. So enter Minister of Defence, Sir George Pearce. Piers was himself from Western Australia and he also owned a farm there so he had quite a bit of understanding for the peasants' plight. The veterans had during the war years seen how effective machine guns were and thought they had the natural solution. Bring those guns in to defeat the bloody emu. Get rid of the pest. Just gun them down. Now, in the product management sphere within tech where I have my day job, there is a saying that goes, fall in love with a problem, not the solution. And I suspect that this is one of those cases where you perhaps should have done a little bit of more research before jumping straight to a solution that probably sounded very solid in your head, but that proved to be quite ineffective in solving the actual problem. It was also a solution that seems triggered by desperation and kind of heated emotions towards these birds more than anything. And those ideas really lead to the best solution. But Piers, he really liked it and he was more than willing to help out the peasants and agreed to their solution. We will machine gun all of them damn birds. Now, Pears didn't go quite all in, as he didn't want the peasants or the farmers to go crazy out there with their own machine guns, so he decided that this was a job for the Australian Army. And in all fairness, it was not exactly the entire Australian Army he set in, as it has very often been described. It was basically just three guys, one officer that was in charge of two gunners, But in retrospect, Piers could perhaps have been a little wiser when it came to the PR effect that it is fair to say he completely misjudged. 
He actually thought that this would be great PR, so much that he sent a film crew out there to record how the government was taking the plight of the working men seriously and was now going to get rid of these emu pests, as it was, you know, also covered day by day in the newspapers at the time. So he basically, he basically stirred this up on his own and he really, really publicly set it up as a battle between the Australian Army and EMU. So you really can't blame the press for showing up to the event that he invited them to. Now, flightless birds are often not seen as having great survival skills. The dodo comes to mind, but the EMUs, they will prove themselves to belong in a completely different category. Okay. So the year is 1932, the date is 2nd of November, and handed the task of taking on the emus as members of the 7th Heavy Battery of the Royal Australian Artillery, led by Major G.P.W. Meredith, accompanied by Sergeant S. McMurray and Gunner J.O. Halloran, armed with two Lewis machine guns. Now at the time before November, Weather conditions had led to the fight being postponed several times, but after a lot of anticipation, now it was finally time for the big showdown, this fateful morning having already gotten a fair bit of attention in the local community, the press would be there, several curious observers would be there to see the start of this war. Soldiers would first be going on the offensive, on a rather small pack of EMUs, about 50 of them. And the strategy was sound. They would round them up and then simply machine gun them down while having them together in one tight pack, like shooting fish in a barrel kind of thing. They immediately discovered that there were several problems with this strategy. First of all, the EMUs would of course not stand still when they started firing, And also, they were about to discover that emus do not run off in packs, rather they go off everywhere at once. So once you start firing, they will be all over the place, each running off on their own. And also, as we said, they're down fast as well. So these gunners will learn that immediately after opening fire, there will be chaos. And then you don't have much time, they don't stick together for more than a split second. And being out in huge open landscapes, the birds will basically run away from you in every imaginable direction. So this is a problem when you are out there and you have some rather large machine guns and they are much faster than you. But this was not the only problem. You see that the emus, they also proved to be a hell of a lot more difficult to hit. But another astonishing fact revealed itself to the soldiers, as it turns out that emus are very thick-skinned on certain parts of their body. So even when hit with machine gun fire, often at long distances, as they were running away real fast... Even if you hit them, you actually might not hurt them all that much. The leader, Major Meredith, said this, quote, If we had a military division with a bullet-carrying capacity of these birds, it would face any army in the world. They can face machine guns with the invulnerability of tanks. End quote. 
Yeah, it's not a joke, and it's uh, undoubtedly rather funny. I can vividly imagine the army sort of trying to recruit war emus or something, being raided for the ba- raided for the battlefield, you know, pecking away at the Germans or whoever. But the fact was that during this first day of what would immediately be called the emu war, and basically was two machine gunners trying to murder emus, they had managed to kill a total of twelve, firing over thousand rounds. Now, this was quite obviously a bit of a problem, as there was up to 20,000 emus, so at this rate, they would really struggle to make any difference. But the good thing was that they were not going to give up. You might say that several aspects of this operation was not entirely well thought through. I mean, they travelled all the way out to the outback with only 10,000 rounds, so that was never enough if you were hoping to make a significant dent in 20,000 birds or so. And it became clear that the first battle of this war would be won by the emus. And it became evident for the press and the local population that the Australian army had to accept a preliminary defeat, but they were only getting started. Now, for Piers, this was obviously not the great PR stunt that he had hoped for, and the comic elements on this attempt to fight emus with machine guns and on top of that losing was, of course, not lost on the political opposition. And during a debate in Parliament House, Pierce would get a roasting by a Senator Dunn, although for a different matter, but the emus had made him a vulnerable target. I'll quote from a current article from the Canberra Times, quote, During his speech, he called Sir George Pierce a political renegade, and the President told him he could not use the word renegade, as it was unparliamentary. Thereupon, the Sydney Senator referred to Sir George as the Minister for the Emu War. Let him get back to his emus, he said. End quote. Now, after the first unsuccessful assault, the soldiers decided to withdraw, much to the amusement of the press that from the very beginning you know, had been making fun of this, And when they, on top of that, were losing, they were, of course, having a field day. The Age wrote this on November 4th, quote, The Lewis Gunners in the Campion District appear to be on a wild emu chase. The country has echoed to the sound of gunfire, but the ranks of the emus, which are estimated at about 10,000, have not been seriously affected. The first day's operations saw the enemy suffer only a dozen or so deaths, although many appear to be wounded, end quote. So as you see, the number of emus varies a bit in the reports, by the way, 10,000, 20,000, but there's a lot of them. And while this was a serious matter for the farmers, it was also a spectacle for the locals. So the gunners, they had several civilian cars driving around following them, Uh, to see this supposed slaughter of the emu. But both spectators and soldiers were constantly struggling to get close enough to them out in the open, as the age wrote, quote, The Lewis Gunners has so far not had a target of more than 30 or 40 in a group, nor a range of less than half a mile. 
Even when the party waited in ambush at sunset for the emus to come and drink, they waited in vain. A group of about 30 appeared about a mile away, and 150 rounds were fired at them from two guns, but no birds were killed outright, although some were evidently hit. End quote. Now, this district of Campion is, by the way, now abandoned. It was settled solely for the purpose of these war veterans so that they can grow crops, and it's in a, in a part of Australia called the Wheat Belt. But it's fair to say that the Emu War is probably the most spectacular event that ever happened in Campion. Quoting again from The Age. The little district of Campion, about 200 miles from Perth, has been sent into a furore of excitement during the past few days by a war which is being waged against an invasion of emus. For the last few days, Campion has echoed to the rat-tat of the Lewis guns, but the honours have been with the pursued. End quote. According to the article, the gunners were often firing from up to 1,000 yards away on birds that were, quote, revealing extraordinary invulnerability, end quote. So they were up against a tough task. But spurred on by the veteran farmers, eager to get some sort of result out of this, they had actually also wowed to finance some of the ammunition themselves, the local farmers, after so after first accepting defeat and try, trying to retreat, the soldiers would return after 10 days and they would have another go at the emus. So as all this happened, Piers constantly had to defend what from day one had the markings of a very comical affair. On November 12th, newspapers indicated that the gunners on their second attempt had been slightly more successful and definitely managed to kill at least a fair few emus, but it still couldn't make a dent in the 20,000 or so that was causing the farmers problems. For peers, this started to become a matter of personal pride, and there were several critical voices regarding his action also stating the obvious, that it might be slightly inhumane to shoot flightless birds with machine guns. But for peers, this was besides the point, as the newspaper The Argus wrote, quote, The Minister for Defence, Sir George Pearce, in the Senate today warmly defended the employment of military forces in the use of machine guns in the Emu War in Western Australia. Senator Guthrie asked whether it was possible to kill the emus by more humane, if less spectacular, methods. Sir George Pearce replied that those who were not familiar with the country in which emus were numerous could not realise the damage that the birds could do. Because of the drought in inland areas, the birds had come down in thousands through the settled areas. Through the gaps they made in the fences, rabbits followed. End quote. And I think we need to be fair with Pierce and the farmers here because we shouldn't forget that these emus, they were actually a real big problem for them. But the fact that Pierce warmly defended this endeavour just added to the growing mockery, especially as this drastic method did not produce any results. Now, the soldiers, they did have cars that they would drive in the outback, and they, they, they had four-wheel drives at the time as well. But obviously, the quality of cars able to drive off-road in 1932 was not the same as now, and they kind of 
look like cars from 1932 tend to look like, and the pace of the emus proved very difficult, as the age wrote, even though they had cars. Quote, The emus waste no time moving off the mark at the first burst from the guns. They are capable of maintaining a speed of nearly 40 miles an hour for mile after mile, and motorists who have chased them assert that they have seen them fleeing at 55 miles an hour. In consequence, the gunners are up against a tough proposition, end quote. Now, I don't think that's accurate, actually. I don't think they're that fast, but still, that, you know, they found them very fast. And this will actually be the story for several more weeks. I mean, obviously, it's not going to change a whole lot, is it? And finally, on December the 10th, the gunners are recalled again, and this time they're recalled for the last time. And the press and anyone else afterwards will be joking about this, marking the curious point in Australian history when the army lost to a pack of birds. Now, I should be fair also, because the leader of the gunners, Meredith, Major Meredith, he claimed that they had gotten better at it as they went along, and he claimed they, towards the end, had managed to kill over 2,000 birds, so actually helping the farmers a little bit. But still, the emu war would always be remembered as a joke. Opposition politicians, they were mocking peers, and they would, for example, ask if medals should be awarded to the brave soldiers and stuff like that. Now, in the aftermath, the farmers actually did ask for, for help from the military again several times, but perhaps very of the ridicule of 1932, the government refused. Instead, the bounty system proved to work much better as rifles and cars improved, and over the years, thousands and thousands of emus would be killed by local farmers with the government's blessing. Former campion farmer Ralph English remembered his father taking part in the Emu War and explained in a more recent interview that they would often go out and shoot them in numbers themselves. Quote, We used to go out and chase them, shoot them. They were just vermin. As soon as they came across some crop or some wheat or something, they thought they were in heaven. The worst part about emus is it's not what they eat, it's what they flatten. They just trample around on the crop and knock it all over, end quote. Better fences and more modern tools helped stop the emu as years went by, and there is, as far as I know, wheat grown in that same area, but as the township of Campion itself was abandoned in the late 1950s, Perhaps we can say that the emu still won in the end. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this short tale. It's a little bit out of the ordinary, but um, as I said, familiar history is about all the amazing and weird stuff humans before us have done, so hopefully you didn't mind me including some extra quirkiness in this podcast, although I am fully aware that this is not game-changing in any way. I am not entirely sure when we will have the next episode coming out, Um 
but I can promise you that next time around we will be tackling a topic that is very much game-changing and it is a historical super important event that continues to play a huge role today. Also, I want to say that I'm super grateful for all the kind words and feedback that comes my way. If you put five stars on whatever app you're listening to, I appreciate that a lot. Or put a review in or something like that. I'm, I'm super happy for everything like that. That's what keeps me going. This is a side project, as you, you might know. Um, but it's so nice to see people from all around the world joining the club, so to speak, starting to, to listening to this. So thank you so much. And until next time, cheers.